Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Knight and welcome to Just Talking Musicals, the podcast and YouTube show where we discuss all things from Broadway and beyond. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to join the conversation. Just Talking Musicals, Musicals, with you. Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Knight and welcome to Just Talking Musicals and part two of our behind the scenes look at the iconic Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun from 1946. In the last episode, we got to the moment where Dorothy and Herbert Fields had written the libretto for this new musical about legendary sharpshooter Annie Oakley, who'd been the star of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. The leading lady, Ethel Merlin, was waiting in the wings to play the celebrated heroine. The investors had their checkbooks at the ready, but they just tragically lost their composer, Jerome Kern. Kern had finally returned to Broadway from Hollywood, where he'd been working in film during the 1930s. And Oscar Hammerstein II, now theatrical producer with Richard Rogers, had been keen to lure his old writing partner back to work with him on Broadway on a revival of their successful 1927 musical Showboat, and to sign him up to work on the new show about Annie Oakley. But, unbelievably, Kern, on his return to New York, had tragically collapsed from a massive stroke while he was out walking on Park Avenue one day and died less than a week later at the age of 60 with his faithful friend Oscar Hammerstein sitting right by him. Both Rogers and Hammerstein knew that even if they were free to start writing it themselves, their writing style didn't really fit the bill for this show. But one after another, Rogers, Hammerstein and Dorothy and Herbert Fields all agreed that there was someone who could unquestionably hit the mark and his name was Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin and his family had arrived in New York in September 1893, part of a wave of one and a half million Jewish migrants who arrived in search of a new life between 1881 and 1914. And the family took up residence in a dank and crowded Lower East Side tenement at 330 Cherry Street in New York. His name then was Israel Berlin and he was five years old. His father, Moses, was married to Lena and they had six children. Moses had been a cantor in the Orthodox synagogue in their hometown and their youngest child was Israel. They had fled from their home in Mohilev, victims of the Russian pogroms of the late 19th century. In later life, Israel, who changed his name to Irving when his first music publisher misspelt his name, was later to describe the most vivid memory of his former home, and I'll be honest, it stayed vivid with me ever since the day I read it. According to his biographer, Lawrence Burgreen, Berlin admitted to no memories of his first five years in Russia except for one. He was lying on a blanket by the side of a road, watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was ashes, and his father, Moses Berlin, bundled up his family and they joined the exodus of Jews from Russia. As an impoverished teenager in New York, young Israel worked as a song plugger, paid $5 a week by Harry Fontilsa, one of Tim Pan Alley's most famous turn-of-the-century songwriters, to sing his songs from the music hall balcony. And from there, he started to play the piano and compose his own melodies at the Pelham Cafe. Interestingly, always and only on the black keys of the piano, and he found he had a talent for writing catchy tunes. By the time he was only 22 years old, the New York World magazine headlined an article about him reading, the man who is making the country hum is getting rich. 
Irving Berlin became a legend in his own lifetime and by 1946 he had contributed to no less than 16 stage shows and 13 film scores, working with internationally acclaimed stars such as the Marx Brothers, Al Johnson, Rudy Valley and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. He'd been at the forefront of composers delivering wartime musical treats like This Is The Army, which included a salute to the stage door canteen with his ballad I Left My Heart at the Stage Door Canteen, following a successful New York run in 1942, with a world tour and a Hollywood film which eventually raised $9 million for the Army Emergency Relief Fund. But the prospect of of collaborating on this new musical comedy about Annie Oakley with Rodgers and Hamstein producing, who had, let's face it, originally chosen Jerome Kern as their number one choice, made Irving Berlin a little reticent at first as to whether he should do it. But he didn't turn down the project out of hand and was given the option to go off and think about it over the weekend. So off he went with allegedly Oscar Hammerstein's playful advice ringing in his ears to just drop the G's off the ends of the words to find those western hillbilly sounds and he duly turned up on Monday morning with two beautifully crafted songs, Doing What Comes Naturally and They Say It's Wonderful. And with that the new musical about Annie Oakley was back in business. Written in less than three months, the songs came easily to Irving Berlin, 19 of them in total all new and at least six of them destined to become hits in their own right. With the first two written on that first weekend, the others followed naturally. You can't get a man with a gun, my defences are down, the girl that I marry, they say it's wonderful, and anything you can do, which was written by Berlin on his way back from a production meeting in the back of a taxi just a few days before rehearsals were due to start. And of course there was another song, a real anthem, designed for a scene change and to be sung by Buffalo Bill and his cohort to entice the young sharpshooter Annie to join them. And it was called There's No Business Like Show Business. But after playing it through to the team one day, Berlin decided to drop it from the song list. He always watched people's faces really carefully when they were listening to his songs. And as he studied Richard Rogers' expression that day, he decided it must surely be a non-starter. And this was hot on the heels of his secretary, Minna Granite, having given the lyrics a thumbs down when she was in the middle of typing them, which was surely quite enough for any composer. According to his biographer, when he dictated the lyrics, she declared, You call that a song, Mr Berlin? This isn't a song, this is a nothing. He apparently stuck up for his song and told her it would likely become one of his biggest hits. But the dart had hit home and he took it out of the running order and it was filed unceremoniously in a pile somewhere in his office. When Richard Rogers noticed the song had been dropped, he insisted on it being put right back in. He loved it, he didn't hate it. Minna Granite and Irving then had to search the office for the song, which had been thrown in an unremembered pile, and it was eventually found lurking under a phone book. And thank goodness they found it too, because aside from being an uplifting Act One song, There's No Business Like Show Business went on to take its eventual place as one of the most enduring songs in the history of American musical theatre and a recognised standard of the great American songbook. I'm Leslie Ann Knight. You can find earlier episodes and actually see me talking on our Just Talking Musicals YouTube channel and we'd love it if you subscribe and follow along with the conversation on social media as well. Just talking musicals, musicals, with you.